I turned to my wife and I said, you know, I wish they wouldn't do this in the comic book. It makes people afraid of chemistry. It makes them think it's unsafe. My wife looked at me and said, well, why are you telling me this? Why don't you call them and tell them what you just said? I said, I think I will. So I went to work, picked up the phone, called up the Archie comic book company and said, let me speak to the managing editor. And so, oddly enough, they put me right through. From NCPR, welcome to Northwards. People, ideas, and conversations from and about northern New York, Vermont, and beyond. I'm Mitch Tyke. Support for the Northwards podcast comes from Joe Steininger and Mary McDonald in support of the Adirondack Foundation, building stronger Adirondack communities. How old was I when I got my first comic book? I don't know, six, maybe seven years old. And it wasn't a comic book like Superman or the Avengers or something that you would like thin paper that you might tear apart as you were reading it underneath the covers. No, my parents actually got it for me. And it was a Doonesbury book called Call Me When You Find America. And there were lots of things, lots of strips in it that I didn't really understand, some words I didn't even know how to pronounce. But even then, at that age, six or seven years old, I was hooked. And I guess my parents were an easy mark because they bought me a lot more Doonesbury books until I was old enough to buy them for myself. And so I bought them and I bought Calvin and Hobbes and I bought Peanuts and Bloom County. And today they fill two or maybe three full shelves on the bookcase in my living room, which is to say that it takes up probably one one hundredth of the amount of space that Zvi Safran's comic book collection takes up in his house. You might know Safran as president of SUNY Canton, but he is in so many ways a renaissance guy whose collection of collections really shapes who he is. So I had the truly fortunate opportunity not long ago to sit down with Zvi Safran in his office and talk, not about higher education and how he's led SUNY Canton for nearly a decade, but instead about comics and jazz. And you are going to think I'm lying when I say this, but really... Viewmaster Photo Reels. This is a conversation I am very much looking forward to. Thank you so much for meeting me. Thanks, Mitch. Love to have you here and uh, looking forward to it. As, as I'm looking, you have a, a variety of comic books on the table in front of us here, and I wondered how much of your comic book collection is wrapped up in memory. Well, actually, um, well, I remember all of it, or almost <laughs> all of it, because you know, um, you know, when I bought it, you know, I wanted it for a particular reason. Okay, but I've got seventy-five thousand comic books, and so seventy-five thousand. Yes, wow. and so I've got to have an app to tell me, do I have this issue? I actually buy very little uh, older comics because I've got pretty much everything that I want, and the stuff that I don't have that I would want costs more than I'm willing to pay for it. And so the most I've ever paid for a single comic book is somewhere between $20 and $25. And That's pretty reasonable. Yeah. And, you know, this isn't to say that if I'm going somewhere and I see a Superman number one, right, and they want $50 for it, believe me, I'll spend the 50 <laughs> quickly. Okay. And, um, but I don't know what I'd do at that point. I mean, I've already read it as a reprint. It's too valuable to just have around the house where, you know, somebody might spill some coffee on it. And, you know, I'd have to encase it in plastic, right, and get it graded so that nobody could actually ever look at it again, okay, and then resell it. 
And so then, where's then the, the point fun is in, right. What yeah, would, where's the fun in that? Yeah, well, what I would mean, you want? Except with to it, make yeah. the money, right? <laughs> right. And so that's not the way I collect. And so I've got seventy-five thousand comic books, and not a single one of them is encased. I, I can't let the opportunity go, uh, or I can't let the opportunity pass without asking you about the Archie comic that is on your wall that you are in. Yeah, that, that's just one of those strange things in life. And so, you know, I collect comics. I've usually got a box of them next to the bed. So when I wake up as I'm trying to get less groggy, I'll usually pull out a comic book and read it and then, you know, and go and take care of business for the day. And so one day I picked up an Archie comic, which I've always liked since I was a kid. And Archie, as is his wont, blew up the chemistry lab. <laughs> now, I'm a chemist by background. And so I turned to my wife and I said, you know, I wish they wouldn't do this in the comic book. It makes people afraid of chemistry. It makes them think it's unsafe. My wife looked at me and said, well, why are you telling me this? Why don't you call them and tell them what you just said? I said, I think I will. So I went to work, picked up the phone, called up the Archie comic book company <laughs> and said, let me speak to the managing editor, Vic Gorelick. And I knew his name because I'd seen it in the comic books. <laughs> and so, oddly enough, they put me right through. And so I said, Vic, I'm a longtime reader, and I wish you know, you'd stop having Archie blow up the chemistry lab if you'd only adopt microscale chemistry, which I did, was doing research in and, you know, and uh, teaching people how to use with two of my colleagues. Um, this sort of thing wouldn't happen anymore. And so he said, well, that sounds interesting. Why don't you send us some information about it? Maybe there's a story in this. And soon after, um, a letter appeared, and I said, okay, here's the formal get lost. But I opened it up, and no, it had thumbnail sketches of the story, and it said, look it over, let us know if we need to correct anything, and if you and your college would like to be drawn into the story, send us some photographs. And, um, and so we sent in the stuff, and they produced a story, and it's in the comic book right here. We got lots of publicity, and every student at the college wanted an autographed copy of the uh, thing. So we actually had to buy like three or four cases of these comics. So the Archie Comic Company did very well. Uh, that was a very good phone call. I guess, and and you know, and I've got for, the original art on my wall. And for someone who has held comic books so dear in his life, having the two subjects that that are you know maybe yin and yang in your in your um, in the person who you are represented in one place is not a bad legacy to have. Do you remember the set of circumstances that put your first comic book in your hand? Yeah, actually I do. Um, I was home it's, and I was sick and so you know I was in bed and my parents wanted to get something to keep me occupied <laughs> and so my father brought home uh, copy of a Disney comic and of a Superman comic and maybe some other ones, okay? And those were the first comics I had, and um, I was hooked. It was, it was from that moment. It was a life-changing experience. Well, maybe it didn't start being life-changing <laughs> at that point, but I was interested. And, you know, over the course of time, I started to collect them. Um, I didn't actually realize early on that um, one could have consecutive issues of these things and that the story might continue from one <laughs> issue to another, right? That came to me later when I was surprised that uh, I picked up a Batman comic, uh, which was in Detective. And um, then uh, at the five and dime where I got it, uh, 
a week or two later, there was another one, right? And I say, oh, they're different. <laughs> and this one's got this number on it, and this one's got a number that's one digit higher. <laughs> oh, okay, that was interesting. So maybe there are a bunch of them that I don't have. And then the collector in me said, you've got to get them all. <laughs> and so, uh, and that's where the nightmare began. <laughs> the collector in you, but, but presumably before the, the collector in you came out, there, you, you were getting into these comic books. I mean, do you, do you remember what it was that really, like, made you connect with them? Why, why this and not... You know, baseball cards or Hardy Boys books or, or anything else? Well, I was, you know, I was a, a voracious reader, okay? And um, there were certain books that I really liked. Um, I remember when I was a kid, for example, one of the series that I liked was the Tom Swift books, right? And that may have propelled me to a life in science, okay? And, um, you know, and I found those enjoyable. And I liked comic books for the same reason. I mean, some of them were funny, so they made me laugh, and I liked that. And, you know, some of them were more exciting, and I liked that. And so, you know, I just, I liked them. I liked the art. I liked the interplay between the words and the art. I thought that was interesting. And in some cases, um, believe it or not, comic books can make you think, okay, because they're on some theme you've not considered. And so um, they're a little bit thought-provoking in different ways. And plus, there's, they're a little bit um, something that your parents you know, kind of look down on. Right? And all kids like things like that. So as, as you got older, you kept collecting comic books. Yes. When did, the, when did the, the, the phenomenon of having these comic books turn into something that you, you wanted to make more of? You know, when I was younger, okay, and I say uh, basically up to the age of 14, right, I collected them. You know, I wasn't really trying to have everything, okay, but, you know, there were certain titles that I liked that I wanted to have good runs of. And, you know, that was fine. Comic books at that point cost 12 cents. And so um, then um, 1969, 1970 hit, and the price of comics went up from 12 to 15 cents. So I went into the store where I got them. Normally I could get eight comic books and a pack of bubblegum cards, right, for a dollar and one cent. So I had my dollar and one cent, and I picked out the eight comic books and the pack of bubblegum cards. And the guy at the drugstore said, uh, sorry, it costs more. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, the price of comic books is now 15 cents. And so long story short, I said, I don't need this kind of misery. And I stopped collecting <laughs> comic books at this point, okay, and began again when I went to college. And so my wife, uh, in something that she has regretted ever since, right, uh, we were just, you know, out for a walk and we saw a sign that said comic show in such and such a hall at uh, my graduate school. And she said, didn't you used to collect comics? And I said, I did. And she said, might it be fun to go to this thing, <laughs> right? And I said, yeah, let's go. And so I went <laughs> to the comic show, okay, and I was looking for one particular magazine, because I still bought them sporadically, okay, and there was a comic book called The Spirit, which I really liked. And I had every issue except the first issue. So I went in there to see if I could find it. Yeah, somebody had it, right? And it was just a couple of dollars, so I bought it, right? And, um, and I saw other things that I already had, that were selling for decent money. 
And so I had the idea, okay, let me get my father to ship down my comic book collection and I'll sell it, okay, and get some money for other pursuits. And so he shipped it down, but uh, I couldn't bring myself to sell it, okay, because it brought back too many nice memories. And that's when it all really began and I started to collect in dead earnest. I, I have to think, you know, you, you, you know you're, you're leading this college and there are younger people around all the time who have grown up in a world where the Marvel Universe, for example, is a completely different place than it was when you were getting into comic books. So much of it is dominated by the film industry. Do you think that kids, you know, or younger people, appreciate comic books for the phenomenon that, uh, for the reasons that you appreciate them? Well, I think when they're exposed to them, they do. Um, you know, you've got the film industry, but the truth of the matter is, if you look at the stories in the movies, they're all based on comic books that were put out when I was reading them. Okay, and so um, the great creators of comic books, like Steve Ditko, who did uh, Spider-Man, like Jack Kirby, who did the Fantastic Four and the Avengers and the X-Men, and who basically did everything that wasn't Spider-Man, right? <laughs> and, you know, the Doctor Strange movie, that's the other right. one that Ditko had something to do with, right? And, um, you know, these are wonderful comics. They had wonderful stories in them. Um, I still remember them. I still remember the very first issue of a Marvel comic that I ever bought, and where I bought it, for that matter. And well, uh, can you share that? <laughs> um, I was actually, um, uh, we went to get my grandmother, who had come up from New York City on the New York Central train, and so I went to the train station, and they had a newsstand there, and there were some comics I'd never seen before, right? There was a Spider-Man number 18, <laughs> and a Fantastic Four number 32. Look how much I remember. And you were how old? Uh... I would have been maybe 12 at this point. And, um, and the Spider-Man issue said, the end of Spider-Man. So I said, okay, I'm not going to buy that if it's ending, okay, <laughs> which I didn't realize that was just hype. Okay? <laughs> clickbait. It was, yeah, the, it was click the equivalent of clickbait. Exactly. But the Fantastic Four one actually scared me when I read it, okay, because in the story um, it involved... Um, the uh, Human Torch and uh, the Invisible Girl's father, okay? And he had been basically kidnapped by the evil guys in it, that was the Skrulls. And um, they rigged a thing where they had defeated them, they had to give him back, but they also had wired him with an explosive so that if the Fantastic Four got near him, right, and he looked up at them, he'd kill them all um, through that explosive. And he realized this and basically took the explosion himself, yeah. killing himself. And I'd never seen that in a comic book. That was pretty shocking, okay, to my 12-year-old mind, yeah. or whatever age I was. And, um, and I was hooked. <laughs> and so at that point, I started adding Marvel comics, which I hadn't seen before, to what I bought. And um, so, you know, I didn't stop with the Disneys. I didn't stop with the DC Supermans. But, you know, there was more to be had. And so... Um, you know, my tastes expanded. You have taught courses that uh, include comic books, if I remember correctly? I've been a guest lecturer in uh, the course at comic, comic Books as Literature. Um, the students here at SUNY Canton uh, surprised me very nicely in the eighth year that I was here, so they made me wait. Um, <laughs> so they decided to host a Comic-Con here at the college and invited me to speak at it. 
And so I did. And so I gave a talk on racism and sexism in comics, which is a subject that interests me greatly. And since then, I've given talks on various other subjects. They have a Comic-Con now every year. So um, this last year, I gave a talk on who really created Marvel Comics, okay? And, um, and what does it mean to create something? And so because there's, you know, a big argument, you know, what credit should Stan Lee, mm -hmm. the person who most people know the most, get for what he did? And there are people who argue almost none, and other people argue almost everything. And, um, you know, I'm on the, he took credit for things he didn't really do side of things, but I still think he had an importance for various reasons. What it means to create something is a fluid thing. I would think that the nature of collecting stuff has changed a lot today based on the fact that you can see so many things online. And we were talking about this at the radio station when I mentioned uh, that you also have a Viewmaster collection. Yeah. And, you know, there was a time in our lives if you wanted to see a, you know, a picture of a zebra on the Serengeti, you could pull out a Viewmaster and, you know, see Mutual of Omaha's Animals of the Serengeti. And there was a zebra in that kind of quasi 3D. And today, you go to Google and you type in zebras Serengeti and you get, you know, 65 pictures instantaneously of zebras on the Serengeti. And yet, um, there's something different about experiencing the picture when you're holding the, the machine in your hand. I agree. And, you know, I always tell people everything's better in 3D. <laughs> okay. And one of the nice things about Viewmasters is that um, especially in their classic period, is that the images are really good and they're real, they've really got depth to them. And it's very pleasurable to uh, look at them. It's really, they used to say, second only to being there. And there's some truth to that. You know, and as you collect these things, there are certain things that are easy to get. And then there are things that are harder to get. So my holy grail, since I was born in Israel, okay, I wanted the viewmasters of everything associated with Israel. And so the Israel-American packet is very common. Okay, so you can get it for under $10. Um, there's a packet for the city of Tel Aviv, okay, which has three reels in it, which was made in Belgium, which is super scarce. And so I was literally hunting for this thing for 10 years before I finally got one. <laughs> I saw it on eBay, and so I bid like $200 for it, figuring I wouldn't have to spend it all, okay? But I really wanted it, and I lost, okay? Somebody bid higher than that, and I'm saying, what on earth is going on here? I bid 10 times the catalog value, okay? And then never saw another one for 10 years. I mean, I called all the big dealers and so forth. Nobody had this. And then one day, I was just looking on eBay, again, um, saying Belgium Viewmasters, okay? And there was one there, right? And the guy wanted $80 for it, so I bought it. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. And now I've got it for less than I was willing to pay originally, but it took me 10 years for that to happen. There's something else on the table in front of us, and that's a, a Miles Davis uh, CD. It looks like a box set, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, and jazz is another huge part of who you are. Uh, when did jazz become... Um, this integral part of Zvi, and, um, and what does it mean today? Well, you know, when I was younger, 
you know, I was introduced to music the same way everybody else is. I heard stuff on the radio and stuff that the other kids were listening to. So, you know, it was the Beatles and things like that. And, you know, and my parents reacted to it the way that all the other parents did, which is, you know, what is this terrible noise, right? And Their so, hair is so long. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, my mother struck a deal with me, okay? And she said, for every album of that yeah, yeah, yeah music, which is what she called it, um, you have to listen to an album of classical music. And she bought some accessible classical music that she thought I might like. And much to my surprise, I found out that I did. And so, you know, I started to enjoy classical music. And when I went to college, okay, I ran into some people who liked jazz. And I really wasn't familiar with it. And I asked, okay, what's a good thing to start with? And they suggested, you know, Dave Brubeck and, you know, other jazz musicians that are readily accessible to most people. They'll listen to it and they'll like it. And so I tried that. And I did like it. And so it's, I started to spread from there to the great female jazz vocalists, okay, like Ella Fitzgerald and uh, Dinah Washington and um, people like that. And, um, and then, you know, it just expanded from there as, you know, I looked at different genres of jazz and found that I really liked them. And so I really liked the classical period from jazz from the 1930s to uh, basically uh, 1965 or so. And um, and so that's where the majority of my collection is because that's what I like best. But there are some more recent ones that I like too. And so what I uh, brought with me, um, you know, you can get jazz on records. And so I've got a couple of records of it here. I've got a Blue Notes, three decades of jazz, starting in 1939 and going to 1949. This is volume one. There are some that go later. Okay, and that's really cool. And I've got a Benny Goodman here, because I'm a huge Benny Goodman fan. And Miles Davis, of course, is a bit more recent. Um, this is a CD set, but, uh, you know, so there's the big argument, which is better, vinyl or CDs. And I decided I don't have to decide, okay? <laughs> I can get both. And so um, the Miles Davis set is really nice because it's got all the stuff that was commercially released in that period, and then a whole bunch of stuff that wasn't alternate takes and things that they decided not to put on the album. And so, again, the collector in me, when I like a particular musician, I want every note that they ever sang. Okay? And so that's how I am. And so I've got a huge collection of Miles Davis um, for that reason. And, um, and more of it keeps coming out because there's, you know, a lot of stuff that was never commercially released and, you know, it gets packaged and cleaned up and so on. And so every so often there's something new by Miles Davis, even though he hasn't been with us for quite some time. Is there a holy grail of jazz, uh, much the way there was one uh, in Viewmaster for you? No, not really, because, um, you know, the nice thing about the music industry is it's constantly putting out older stuff in new packages. And so this is really the best time ever, okay, if you want to collect and own music because fewer people are doing this, and so the music companies are a little more desperate, and so they put out big box sets, right, collecting everything, and especially in classical music. And um, so you can get these, uh, you know, boxes with 100 CDs in them of everything that Eugene Ormandy did with the Philadelphia Symphony, 
in mono, okay? <laughs> and so you know another box set is coming of what was released in stereo. And in fact, I just saw on eBay it's coming out in a couple months. And you can be sure I'll be buying it. I was just going to ask if you had the alert turned on for it. I absolutely do. <laughs> Where do you keep all this stuff? Uh, I've got a big house. <laughs> And so uh, the collection has kind of gotten out of hand. It's probably at uh, three or 4,000 LPs now. I've got the two big shelves that totally filled. I've got, they're now, you know, stacked on the floor, okay, in, my, in one of the music rooms. And um, so I've got to figure out how to do something with them. And so I've kind of stopped buying new LPs, but not completely. I'm just, it's just very hard to get me to buy one now. It strikes me, though, that, that your music collection is the one collection that you can enjoy while you're also enjoying your comic books or your Viewmasters. Well, I've got to admit that um, one of my big pleasures in life is sitting back, having a cool album on, and reading a comic book while I'm listening to it. Okay, I haven't ever combined Viewmasters with other things, Okay, because I'm not sure why. I just haven't. Maybe I will now. And, I think um, you could write a whole blog article on the best jazz albums that go with certain genres of Viewmaster. Well, that that would be kind of cool. Um, as it happens, at the college, I do have a blog that uh, it's called The Weekly Blab. It's not quite weekly because I just don't have the time to put it out weekly. And often I will write about something interesting in music that something that I bought set me off to thinking about. And so um, I'll often do that. I'll often talk about a comic book, say, that led to a current movie, okay? And, um, or, you know, again, just something that I've bought recently that set off some thoughts. And so, again, I enjoy writing about that. And um, I'm also on uh, Facebook um, in the perfect group for me, which is Old Guys Who Love Old Comics, (laughs) okay? Which kind of describes me perfectly. And, you know, and again, I've had an opportunity to incorporate what I love into what I do at the college. And so with jazz, for example, during the pandemic, I wanted to give students something to do online. So I did a series of 24 or 26, I can't remember now, episodes of Jazz with the Prez. Okay, every Saturday night, I would do a show on a different jazz musician. And I'd invite the students to uh, listen, and I found out not only students were listening, but some of our um, college council members were listening, and some of our alumni were listening as they heard about this. And they liked jazz too, and so I got to talk with them. And in fact, every so often somebody said, when are you going to bring that back? <laughs> and so I may, I may do some, a couple more episodes this fall, we'll see. Right? But I really enjoyed doing that, and you know, I did it on Zoom. And so I get a chance to uh, tell people about the stuff that I like, and students sometimes even think, this president, he's kind of cool. I was just going to say, there are not always uh, good opportunities to humanize a president at a college, and this uh, seems like... uh, several really kind of amazing ways to uh, to connect with them, even if they didn't know they were into comic books or jazz beforehand. Well, one of the nicest things that happened was at the first Comic-Con, I had a table and I was displaying some of the more interesting stuff that I have. And a student who was just looking at the college, because we were doing an open house that day, um, came by and just chatted with me and looked at the things. And he said, you know, I've got an uncle who is the artist on a particular comic book. And he asked if I've ever heard of it, and I hadn't 
heard of that particular comic. The student wound up enrolling <laughs> here at SUNY Canton, and like the day that he came with his parents to you know move in, um, he came by my office and he had a couple of graphic novels by his uncle that had been autographed to me and that had little drawings um, that he had done, that the artist had done by hand, and he gave it to me as a gift. Oh, wow. And so I thought that was just, you know, the nicest thing and kind of ties it all together. Absolutely. Well, Zvi Safran, thank you so much for sharing these parts of your life with us, and uh, here's to... Uh, to many more years of collecting. Well, thank you, and it's been a pleasure. Zvi Safran is the president of SUNY Canton and a collector's collector. He has significant collections of comic books, of jazz, and of Viewmaster reels. I met him in his office at SUNY Canton, which includes framed on the wall the original artwork from an Archie comic in which he is a character. You can see a photo of it and read more at ncpr.org slash northwards. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Northwards. I'm Mitch Tyke. I hope you enjoyed our interview, and you can catch new content every Friday right here or wherever you get your podcasts. Find out more about Northwards and NCPR on our mobile app or at our website, ncpr.org. And while you're there, make a donation to support everything you hear on North Country Public Radio. Northwards is an NCPR podcast production. The show is written, edited, and produced by Mitch Tyke with digital production supervision by me, Ethan Shanty. Caitlin Kelly handles our social media, Bill Hanel is our digital director, and Doyle Dean is our production manager. Music is by the Wickmore Jazz Trio of Plattsburgh. To support this show and find more podcasts, visit ncpr.org. This is NCPR, North Country Public Radio.